So we're in a series entitled, This Is Your Grandma's Church. And uh, what we're doing in this series is uh, not uh, talking about the methods of uh, ministry 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 60 years ago uh, or 100 years ago. We're talking about the timeless truths that uh, never go out of style. And we've defined Grandma's Church as this, the place of timeless truth untouched by modern lies that is absolutely certain of God's faithfulness. And so last week we kicked it off with Sabbath. We talked about that. This week I want to talk about uh, eternal perspective. And the idea of eternal perspective is uh, uh, perhaps I think one of the uh, the weapons, if I can if I can use that word, one of the weapons of the Christian life uh, that can be uh, most underutilized. And in fact, if you say if you think what is the big difference between a, a Christian and a non-Christian? What's the big difference? between how we live um, as Christians or as non-Christians, I think this one thought, this idea of eternal perspective is something that clearly separates us from the rest of the world. And it's not just to separate us in the sense of um, having our, our mind such in the clouds uh, that we forget about life on earth, but the power or the strength of our eternal perspective or of your eternal perspective will drastically change the direction of your earthly plans. Let me say that again. The strength of your eternal perspective will change the direction of your earthly plans. When we as followers of Christ can step into the power of this perspective, eternal perspective, and my aim this morning is to show you how this idea of eternal perspective was so wired into the Apostle Paul that he couldn't help but write about it uh, in, in almost every letter that he wrote and, uh, and around almost every situation that we face in life. And in that, what Paul would always go back to was eternal perspective, eternal perspective, eternal perspective. So this morning I have a story. And well, I have a text first that we'll read. Then I've got a, a quick story. Then I have one absolute statement of fact. And then I have five applications for you this morning. And uh, so let's start with the text like we always do. And um, I'm preaching out of the NIV this morning. I typically preach out of the ESV. Uh, but this morning I'm preaching out of the NIV because uh, I shared this with you. My grandma passed a, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, one of the things that I, I, I took out of their house uh, was her Bible. And so this is my grandma's Bible. Bible, for this is your grandma's church, and uh, she was in the NIV. Uh, anyone else? I'm, I've been in church long enough to know that when, uh, or to remember when churches switched from the KJV to the NIV, and it felt like blasphemy. Anybody else remember that? Yeah. You, you were like the cool kid if you read in the NIV. All right? Super trendy. Second Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm just going to read through this text. Now we know... I'm starting in verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. It's saying there that as Christ followers, uh, that there is this inward groaning and desire. If you've ever heard Christians or churches use the term, you were made for eternity, right? This is uh, where that idea comes out of it. Uh, that when you're in Christ, 
even if life is great, right, there is this desire. The Apostle Paul said it like this, for me to, uh, 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 to die is gain, right, and to live is Christ, uh, that the desire for Christ to be with him is so strong, there's like this inner longing, Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. In other words, we're so aware of the weight of sin. We're so aware of how it messes up, how it destroys, how it kills. And we're just longing for the glorification of when sin finally disappears. And we're like fully in Christ. says, So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. The irony of that uh, should hit us. uh, Because if you don't have Christ, right? If you don't have Christ, then you think that which is mortal is life. But in Christ, you realize that that which is mortal, right? That which is of this earth that will not pass on into eternity uh, is uh, that's not what is actually life. He says, now it is God who made us for this very purpose. The ESV says, it is God who is preparing us for this. What purpose did he make us for? The very purpose uh, uh, of understanding the eternal nature of things, of existing on this earth in Christ, for Christ, by Christ, but also realizing that our heart longs for something more. And it is God who made us like this. And then he gave us help. Amen. He has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. The Holy Spirit then, right, Ephesians teaches us, is the down payment of our salvation. And so when you do have those moments when you're like lost in the spirit, whether it's in worship or it's in prayer or you're reading or you're walking or whatever it might be, and you just have that moment where you're like, oh, the Holy Spirit is just so present right here. It just brought a peace that I could not have known. It's, uh, it's given me strength in the middle of this battle, right? That that right there is, uh, it's the Holy Spirit who is doing that. It's the indicator that you are in Christ, but it is also a snapshot of the beauty and the perfection of heaven. He says, therefore, because we have that, we are always confident. And the Christian is confident. The Christian is confident. And there was at some point in time, and this probably is on repeat in in, in Christian circles or in the life of the Christian church, um, that as, the, uh, as the, the, the church, from like a doctrinal perspective, started talking less and less about eternity, uh, particularly the, the other end of eternity, uh, eternal death, uh, that, uh, that it seems like what uh, kind of sweeps through the church is this lack of confidence about our salvation. But Paul uh, is not, uh, he's not confused on where he's going to end up. And Christian, nor should you be. Therefore, he says, we are confident and, and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, right? But we will be with him someday. We live by faith, not by sight. The unbeliever can only live by sight because they have no faith. We live by faith, not by sight. In other words, We know that what we see is not really what is going on. 
There's something more. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There might not be a more dividing line in the scriptures on for you and I to evaluate where our heart is than that line right there. We are confident, I say, and would prefer. Would you prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord? Does it sound better? That's when you know you've stepped into Christ. He says, so since we can't do that, right, or, or since we shouldn't, shouldn't intentionally, like, bring that on, right, since we can't do that, what we are going to do instead is we are going to make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. What's he saying? He's saying, because I would rather be with Christ than here on this earth. That is the eternal perspective that the Christian takes on. And the non-Christian, they, they don't know that eternity exists, right? They have no picture of eternity. And so they can only prefer the body. They can only prefer the right here because they're, uh, they lack confidence in what's in the future, and even as you think about the, the modern ideas around eternity, right, uh, either A, that it doesn't exist, and if it doesn't exist, then you literally have nothing but what you have right now, or you think about people who are, who are uncertain, who throw their hands up and they go, oh, we can't really know. And so there's a lack of confidence about what comes next. Then you have to kind of dance this line of this life is important, this life is all we get, right? Or maybe there's something on the other side. Wow. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Now, here's the line. Oh, our goal then is to please him. For we must all appear. Grandma's church, y'all. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive what is due him. For the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Opening statement of fact before we move into anything else this morning is this. Eternity is absolute or definite. Eternity is a definite fact. But eternal life is not. Eternity is an absolute fact, but eternal life is not. Even in the church now, sadly, there are these questions about eternity. What happens? And there are heresies that have snuck their way into the church over the years. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, it was the heresy of universalism, and uh, that was the idea that, uh, that everyone's going to get in at the end. 
and, 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 and there's an element of it that kind of feels nice, right? And so people locked in on this, and, uh, and, and, and uh, there was a book written called The Racing Hell, and, uh, and, 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 and it talked about this. Well, The Racing Hell was actually written in response to a book that was called Love Wins that championed this idea of universalism. Uh, there's other ones that have popped up, like annihilationism, which is that you just kind of end uh, at the existence. Both of these things are contrary to the scriptures. Furthermore, another distortion that has um, uh, been kind of created is this, that, uh, that there is, uh, yes, an eternal life uh, or eternity, but there really is only eternal life. And there's kind of like, uh, as Christians, we believe in justification by faith alone. Uh, there's been an idea that has surfaced that's like almost like justification by the fact that you made it through life alone. And so if you just got through it, right, uh, and, uh, and like, just like, like dying is the only thing that has to happen for, to, to justify you to make it into eternity. And this is contrary to what the scriptures teach. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And sometimes modernists, uh, right or uh, those who, who fall into uh, uh, progressive Christian theology, right? They want to eliminate this idea of God as a judge or Christ as judge, and want to uphold this Jesus who would never judge, even though it was Jesus Himself who laid this out. Even in the Great Sermon on the Mount, which starts with the Beatitudes that are so beautiful, and uh, and there's all this idea, and sometimes uh, uh, even progressives will look at the idea of the Sermon on the Mount, and they'll say, look, and really, it was just all about how we love each other and how we interact with each other, and that's all that really matters. You know how it ends? The Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says at the end of it, and then I will judge. I will judge. In John chapter, what is it? John chapter 11. If you got your big Bible, you can flip it over there. John chapter 11. Jesus is telling this story. And I'm sorry, he's not telling a story. He finds himself in the middle of a story, of somebody's story. And what has happened in John chapter 11 is um, two sisters that Jesus was close with, Mary and Martha, uh, they had lost their older brother. And uh, Jesus shows up onto the scene and he's engaging in this conversation with one of the sisters named Martha. And as he's engaging in the conversation with her, uh, she makes this um, reference to the fact that Jesus could have healed Lazarus. And then she, she says, but I know we'll see him again. He will rise again. And then Jesus gets into this conversation with Martha. And I love how Jesus, just in the normal happenings of life, uh, in this conversation with Mary and Martha, can drop like a theological truth bomb. Right into the middle of it. And Jesus says to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he goes on to say this. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he ends it with the most pointed, strong question, I think, in the scriptures. Do you believe this? And when we think about the idea that eternity is absolute, but eternal life is not, there are two paths, eternal life or eternal death. And the difference uh, in, uh, in, in which of those somebody experiences is wrapped up right into this question. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And the, the reverse is true. He who does not believe in Christ thinks he lives but will die. This is the other side of it. 
And the, the difference then is, is that belief, and I've said this before, uh, that belief in the Christian faith, if I can use a metaphor to help us understand the idea of what does belief mean, um, uh, belief in the Christian faith is not the idea of standing and saying, I believe that the plane in front of me can fly. That's not belief. To say, oh, I think the plane can fly. Belief is I enter into the plane, it takes off, it transforms where I'm at, and it takes me to a new place. That's belief. And uh, many, sadly, the scriptures teaches, that, teaches us, will be like those who say, God, I believed in you. I believed the plane could fly. And he said, no, no, no. It, it, it's stepping into the plane and letting it take you somewhere that proves the belief. It is not just the um, intellectual acknowledgement that, uh, that, that, yes, this idea of Christ being real could be true. It is the um, belief by placing yourself into it and then it changing you or taking you, if you're following that metaphor, taking you somewhere new is the proof of true belief. And he says this, anyone who believes like that uh, in what? In me, he says, in me. And uh, this is why, uh, again, Jesus dropped me like a uh, theological truth bomb right here. Because he's saying anyone who believes in me, in Christ, in the full Christ, the absolute um, um, uh, um, Jesus of the scriptures. This is not anyone who believes in faith, anyone who believes in God, anyone who believes in Christianity, anyone who believes in morality, anyone who has a general understanding that church can be a good thing. This is saying anyone who believes, anyone who steps into the plane, who steps into relationship with Christ, allows it to change them and transform them. And it is a belief in Jesus, the full Christ. And that's why you'll see this. Every wrong theology throughout the years, every wrong doctrine that begins to surface or every wrong and incorrect movement does what? Changes Jesus. Changes Jesus. Look at most of the cults. In the end, why do you look at most of the cults and say, well, that's not right? What do they do? They change Jesus. That's what they do. Why? Because what the enemy wants to do what Satan wants to do is, uh, is destroy humanity, right, and to lead them to their death instead of their life. And he knows that it is anyone who believes in Christ, in the true Christ, that will live. And so if he can change Jesus, then he can get people to believe in the false Jesus, and they won't live, they'll die. That explains every cult ever, by the way. It explains every wrong doctrine and heresy come from the, the power of darkness to disrupt uh, life and to create death instead of life. And so he says, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in Jesus, uh, the perfect spotless lamb, whoever believes in Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, whoever believes in Jesus, lived right his perfect life as the fulfillment of the law, whoever believes in Jesus as the substitutionary atonement for sin on the cross, whoever believes in Jesus as the risen Christ, that Jesus will live. Now, this is an absolute certainty. And in the Christian life, in the Christian life, this is the one thought, the one idea. Oh, by the way, before I move on, he ends with this important question. Do you believe this? Friend, do you believe this? Do you believe? 
Not just an intellectual acknowledgement. Do you believe as in you have stepped in and it has changed your perspective on everything? Do you believe this? Your belief in that will dictate what happens on the day of judgment. It's the only thing that will dictate it. Not your kindness. Not that one thing you did that one time. Your belief in Christ is your salvation. That's it. Now, sometimes Christians get it wrong, and they go, I'm set for eternity, so now I can do whatever I want on earth. Maybe you've heard the term that's got popular at some point in time, like, I got my fire insurance, right? It means you're not going to burn in hell. Okay. And so I don't need to do anything. I don't know. Paul, over and over and over and over I'm going to show you this morning. He, he, he keeps saying, if then, if then, if you have understood what's at stake in eternity, then that will drastically determine how you live in this life. It will change everything about how you live in this life. Five ways, by the way, that uh, I'll give you five of them this morning. The first one. Let's look in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. First Thessalonians chapter 4 through, uh, through 18. So, so to, to clarify again, what I'm saying is this. These are five things that change how you live on this earth because now you understand what eternity is. First one, brothers... I'm in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. The first thing it changes, okay? Um, and by the way, this is your grandma's church, so I got five points, and they all start with the same letter. Come on, all right? First one, how you mourn, how you mourn. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other, each other with these words. Amen? What's he saying? He's saying it changes the way that we mourn. It changes the way that we, that we even face loss in life because only the Christian can confidently know what death is not the end. And so when we walk through life and we face the worst thing that life can throw at us, right, which is the death, uh, right, of, uh, of someone that we love or someone that, is, uh, that we are in relationship, right, with, uh, and, and that is the worst that life can throw at us. And isn't that the beauty of the cross? The beauty of the cross takes Satan's greatest tool and his greatest weapon of war, which is the ending of this life. And the cross says, and the cross nullifies even that. The cross nullifies Satan's best attempt at destruction, which is death. And why? Because we know that death is not the end. 
when I was mourning the recent loss and uh, passing of my grandparents, uh, I was having a conversation with Lindsay, and she said, you know, what's going through your head? And it's all the typical things, right? I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have called more. I wish I would have shown up more. I wish I would have gone that one time. I wish I wouldn't have taken it for granted. I wish I would have, like, all of them, right? And we all do this. And, uh, and, and mourning, right, is, is, is biblical. It's godly. We're supposed to all of that kind of stuff. And in a very, this is your grandma's church fashion, Lindsay just responded with, yes, but you have to remember how much time you will have in eternity. And so we mourn differently because we know death is not the end. And Christian. That is not the end. And so mourn and feel, yes, but there's still a hope we have. Why? We will see them again if they are in Christ. So what does that mean? Oh, it means we share Christ. It means we share faith. And because we're looking and we're saying, this is not it. This is not all of it. There's so much more. Embrace Christ. Right? So it even changes, it changes the way we mourn. That's the, the first one here, right? Okay, the second one. Um, so I, I, how you mourn, right? The second one is this, because I want to stick with my, my, my flow. And the second one is, is how you money. <laughs> changes that one. Flip over to 1 Timothy if you got a Bible. And, and Paul, it's like once he understood this eternal perspective thing, he, he just got excited all over the place throughout the scriptures to just show people this is how eternal perspective changes everything on this earth. And, uh, and he didn't let anything go untouched. And so the second thing it changes is how you money. First uh, Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But, and then, so I'll read it, but then look at the end where Paul ties in how internal perspective is what changes everything. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Now, there might be a temptation for people to go, yeah, so I'm going to get as much as I can while I can. Paul didn't stop there. He goes, but we have food and clothing. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. I mean, have you ever seen somebody get ruined by money? Okay, come on. Paul knew what he was talking about. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Wow. What a warning. It's almost like Paul is saying, can you believe this, guys? Some people have exchanged money for life in Christ. Wow. So then what does he say? In verse 17, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Oh, that's the reminder. It could be gone in a minute. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will, here he is, he ties it into eternity. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they will take hold of the life that is truly life. 
In the end, he, he ties it all back in, right? And Paul does this in different places. He ties in. He's showing us like a mental uh, or like a heart conviction on why we should think certain ways or look certain ways. And in this one, he, he actually ties our generosity back to the idea of eternal perspective. Uh, some of us, we know exactly what is in our 401k. We know exactly what is in our retirement accounts. And it's almost as if Paul, without any idea of knowing about retirement accounts, is saying this, what's in your heavenly retirement account? It's like, that's what he's saying. And I would say this too, by the way, if you're young, if you're young, like uh, in the same way it's true, the younger you start your 401k, the better. The younger you start that eternal one, the better. And so start to operate in this now. This was so fun. Uh, this morning, uh, my daughter Reagan, she, had her very, she gave her very first tithe this morning before we got in. It was so cute. And um, we got a picture of it. And, and, and she made a dollar picking up pine cones. Okay, so two cents a pine cone, all right? I don't know if that's in line with everybody else, so let me know. Okay. <laughs> so she came back, she had like 37. I was like, can you please go find 13 more? This is gonna get a little weird, right? Um, so she found 13 more. So uh, anyway, so I gave her a dollar, and this morning she came in and she dropped a dime in the bucket. And it was so cute. Friend, eternity, eternity should dramatically change the way you money. Because you're looking and you're realizing all of the things that Paul already said in here, that this is temporary. That you can achieve it and you can get it and you realize as soon as you get it how dissatisfying it actually was. And then you chase the next one or the next one only to find out that that one was equally as dissatisfying as the one before eventually. And Paul says, no, no, no. When you keep eternity in mind, it unleashes a ridiculous generosity. You realize. And he hits, see how he hits all of the things in there? He hits fear. He hits a lack of contentment. He hits the desire right, for uh, like just the desire of the greed of more and more. And Paul's like suddenly kind of blowing each and every one of those up. And he's saying one of the perspectives that should change it then is your eternal perspective. Keep eternity in mind. And, and it's almost like Paul's saying when you keep eternity in mind and you look at what you have when you're rich, and rich, I know we could define a million different ways. You go, wow, yeah, I'm going to do this differently with eternity in mind. That's the second one. So it changes how you mourn. It changes how you money. The third thing he says is this. It changes how you mend. How you mend. John 15. John 15. Jesus is having this. Uh, he's in the middle of one of his, his, his longest uh, uninterrupted speeches. And in John 15, 16 through 17, he says this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And what do we know? That the fruit that will last is the, uh, is the fruit that's going to carry on into eternity. And he says, then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my command. And then he ends it with this. This is my command. Love each other. And so to, to summarize the point here, he's saying that, uh, that there is this idea here uh, that, that you and I have been called, right, to, uh, to bear fruit that will last for all of eternity. And the only fruit that will last for all of eternity is 
that which is done in God's name, right? That which is done for the, the sake of the kingdom. All else will burn away. And, uh, and then he wraps it up with, so love one another. And, and the point I'm making is that when you keep eternity in mind, it actually changes the way you mend relationships right now. Sometimes we go to the reverse way and we say, oh, we'll figure it out in eternity. And I think Jesus is actually saying the last. He's saying, no, 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 no. Live like you're in eternity right now. So go mend the relationship with eternity in mind, with the, uh, with the idea that some of those people that you have the most division and tension with are actually people you're going to be spending all of eternity with. And he's saying, instead of figuring it out then, figure it out now. With eternity in mind, knowing that one day you will be reconciled. Reconcile now. Forgive now. Release the bitterness now. Let eternity actually motivate you to mend the relationship. You're going to spend eternity with them in heaven. Look at the flip side of it, friend. What if they're not in Christ? That person. That person that you have the tension with, that you have the anger with, that you have the bitterness with. And I think that the scripture is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Think about eternity. You're going to hold on to that? You're going to hold on to that earthly hurt and pain, and I know it hurts. But you're going to hold on to that with eternity in mind? What if you, offering that person the forgiveness... What if you releasing the bitterness, what if you laying down your own rights is the very thing that God uses to change that whole person's eternity? With eternity in mind, mend differently. Paul, he, I know that wasn't Paul, that one was Christ. All right, then we're going to pick it back up with Paul again, and he's going to give us a fourth one. How much time do I got? I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Number four, you can go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I intentionally did not put bookmarks in here so you guys would have to listen. It's going to be flipping the page. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. It changes how you mourn. It changes how you money. It changes how you mend. The fourth thing it does is this. It changes how you move through difficulty. It changes how you move through difficulty. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Get this. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And Paul is saying that, that the idea of an eternal perspective, it changes the way that you move through the difficult seasons of life. And he, he lays out such important truths that, uh, that, were, uh, that allowed him to move through it with that perspective. And when Paul says our light and momentary troubles, okay, if I had more time, I would go uh, read the listing of Paul's light and momentary troubles. I'll give you a couple of them. Paul's light and momentary troubles were being whipped 39 times 
seven different times. I think it was seven. Maybe four. I don't know. A lot. Paul's momentary troubles were being thrown into prison. Paul's momentary troubles were being hungry to the point of starvation, uh, thirsty to the point uh, of dehydration. Uh, Paul's uh, light and momentary troubles, right, were were eventually going to lead uh, to being martyred. And when Paul is looking out and writing to the church about light and momentary troubles, he is not talking about having to park in the grass on Sunday morning. He's not talking about having to walk all the way around to pick up your kids, okay? What's he talking about? He's talking about the real stuff in life. When it gets as hard as it has ever been. When your body is breaking down. When you are in the spot and you never thought you would be in this spot. You never thought you'd be in this spot financially. You never thought you'd be in this spot relationally. You never thought you'd be in this spot with a kid or a child. It never even crossed your mind. And he's saying, those light and momentary troubles. Now, he can only call them light and momentary compared to something that are so heavy and eternal that it could make what we walk through feel light and momentary. The opposite of light and momentary, right, is weighty and eternal. And so what is he saying? He's saying, when you walk through the light and momentary troubles of this world, in this life, when you walk through them with integrity, When you walk through them and the Holy Spirit is forming you in the midst of them, that something amazing happens that the world can't understand. He says, it can be like this. It can be like your your body is wasting away, yet inwardly you're actually being renewed day by day. Have you watched somebody walk through the light and momentary troubles and you can see the weight of it? You can, it's almost like you can see the body falling apart. You can see everything else falling apart around them. You can look in and it almost feels Job-like. You're like, what is happening to that person? But as you watch them, you actually see how their faith is actually growing more and more vibrant as they walk through it. Uh, that their unyielding commitment to Christ through tears, through hurt, through pain it, it is actually deepening and it's going further and further down and people look and go how is this possible right and and how did you get through that and the only response is it was in that moment that Christ actually formed me the most and I was wasting away but as I was wasting away, as my life was being wasted away, as your life was being wasted away, uh, everything was being stripped down. There was actually a beauty of grace that was coming up from the inside. And then he's saying in that, that even that, that's just the snapshot. That in eternity, in eternity, there's a, there's a weight of glory that will last forever, that awaits you when you get there. And it's so heavy, it's so beautiful, it's so eternal that it will make the hardest thing you walk through in life feel light and momentary. 
That's how amazing it is. And so an eternal perspective, it changes the way you move through these things. And then he goes on, by the way, he started it with this, what? Do not lose heart. And so my friend, let me remind you of those words. If you are in that season right now, if your body is breaking down, if the relationship is ending, if this is the most difficult season you have ever walked through, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Let the gospel, let the Holy Spirit do something in you right here that shows I figured this eternal perspective thing out. I am in Christ. And what is the proof that you are in Christ? That even as you're walking through that, you're being renewed day by day on the inside. Do not lose heart. He ends it with this encouragement. He says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It echoes the words that he's going to use later in the book of uh, Colossians. And uh, the, the last of the five is this. It, it, it changes how you are motivated uh, when you understand eternal perspective. In Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4, he says this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Let me re reiterate that line. Reread it. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul, in this one, he's taken everything he's written, and I think this is his best way of summarizing all of it. And what is he saying here? He's saying that this is how big eternal life and eternal perspective is, that if you have indeed stepped into Christ, your entire life, your entire old way of doing things, everything that you used to do uh, has disappeared and is gone, and now your entire life is in Christ. How you mourn, how you meditate, how you money, how you're motivated, how you move through difficulty. It is all now wrapped up in Christ. And someday, Christ will come back. And when he comes back, then all of it will make sense. He says, and until that moment, until that moment, keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And I'll add Paul's other words, and don't lose heart. Let's pray. Father, the first thing that has to be dealt with here is our own eternal reality. And so, Father, I pray right now that any of those who have not placed their faith in Christ have not stepped in yet to Jesus in such a way that it changes everything would do so right now. Oh, and if that is you, place your faith in Christ. Believe in the story of the gospel. Your sin paid for by Christ the only way. And, Father, I pray then for everyone else, for all of us, 
that we would now live with eternity in mind. And in all the ways we have mentioned, and in every other way, Lord, we would remember what's awaiting us in eternity. And that it would drastically change how we live on this earth. And Father, I pray for my friends who are in the midst of the the tough season right now. I pray that they would not lose heart. I pray that you would breathe life and joy and peace in your presence in the midst of this season. And Jesus, help us to be a people and a church that lives with eternity in mind. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.